Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Um, We're doing interviews with people on the picket line to find out what people remember or know or have heard about the 1988 writer's strike. Oh, geez. I don't know anything. I think... Yeah, I don't know anything. (laughs) In 88, I was in third grade, so... I was even in L.A. If you had to guess what we were striking for in 88, what would you guess? Probably the same thing. It's probably just because billionaires have money and writers don't. 1988 residuals, or was that the... Yeah, is 1988 the residuals one? Uh, I'm assuming we were fighting for maybe as TV was changing, cable. There was no DVDs yet, VHS, home video. Maybe that was something that we, the writers were fighting for. Home? Did it affect uh, Police Academy, any of those movies? Maybe. Great, <laughs> great question. Let's, let's hunt that one down, Mary. Yeah, I would like to know, because those movies kind of got worse. How long did, was the 88 strike? It was about six months. It was our longest oh. strike. And what, what came out of it? What was the win? You don't know anything, Ian, do you? I do. I just want to hear you tell me. <laughs> oh, good. You're early. Welcome back to John Levenstein's Retirement Party. I'm Mary Kobayashi, and we're doing a deep dive into the writer's strike of 1988, the longest in WGA history. We tracked down Brian Walton, the executive director of the Guild in 88, to find out why it was so contentious and how he was able to hold the union together. We also talked to Ken Ziffrin, the lawyer who mediated the final settlement about the key to unlocking the negotiations. But first, we hit the picket lines for some gritty NPR-style interviews with muffled sound and honking horns. Oh, hello. This is Barry Rabinowitz, my former fantasy baseball league commissioner. Oh, my God. Barry. This is supposed to give me more more gravitas. I really... No, less. Oh. (laughs) Barry, what do you remember about 1988? What can you tell us? 1988 was, uh, unfortunately, we were not united the way we are now. There were two groups. One who called themselves the Union Blues, um, named after a TV series, <laughs> really. And they, they were, they were, they wanted to settle. Their attitude was, why are we holding out over cassette tape residuals when so few people are going to get them? The rest of us believed the contract was a contract, and the contract said we get a percentage of the gross. Therefore, we should get a percentage of the gross, not of the net, which is what the studios are trying to do. And that split got deeper and deeper as things went on. And ultimately, we settled. Uh, They gave us more money for the health fund, things like that. And then, you know, they were all happy that uh, we ended the strike. Now, to be fair, a lot of people suffered in that strike. 
I know people who lost their homes in that strike. It was a very long strike. And, uh, you know, the studios, we, we, we were where we were, and we had no, no choice but to accept it at that point because it was falling apart internally. But, uh, uh, I don't remember his name. Lionel something. Lionel Chetwin. Thank you, now, John. He wasn't only the head of the Union Blues, later called the Writers' Coalition, but he was kind of a provocateur as well. Very like he, much. he, he was didn't the right wing of the provocateur. Yes, he did not mind play. He didn't mind playing the villain at these meetings. Okay, Lionel Chetwin, uh, who had written The Winds of War, uh, on television, was one of those people who were saying, "Look, we're only talking about a few movies that are on, that that are on." Uh, the sets and, and, and people and that's, we shouldn't all be on strike for that and some of us said no eventually everything will be because I saw my brother was in the, was in the business of, of videotape distribution he knew what the business was and I knew what the business was and I said they're, they're going to get everything on there eventually uh, and so you know we settled and uh, a few months later Lionel Chetwin met a friend of mine, another writer, and said to her, you know, Winds of War is out on, <laughs> on, on cassette now, and uh, I, I, you guys were right. It's like, great, Lionel, great. <laughs> it felt to yeah. me like in 88, like we had no choice to settle because the Writers' Coalition, those ones who didn't want to strike, they put a clock on the strike, didn't yeah. they? they? They really were not, they were not helpful, putting it mildly. <laughs> and you know, the fact is the other guilds had settled with, the, with, with them and, and accepted their, their version of, you know, uh, of, the, of the net profit rather than gross. Right. And because they needed money for their health. Their health system needed money. The Directors Guild did. The Directors Guild health system is always in trouble. And uh, and so that's, you know, that's why that ended up going the way it did, because you can't fight everybody. Do you remember Larry Gelbart being upset at the settlement? Yeah. He said something like, we have Gulf and Western's nuts in our hands and we're letting go. I, you know, I made a very passionate speech uh, that night was the night we approved this. What talking, did you say? I talked about people who, a friend of mine, who had lost his house and he had fought this fight and now we're just deserting it. And he said, I said, you guys think it's not going to cost you money? You think it's only a few people? But it will. I assure you. It will. And you will regret this. And of course they did. <laughs> At least not Lionel did because this was there immediately. Wouldn't you agree that things are much better now within the union, internally? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this is an existential strike. Right. That strike was about dividing the pie. This is about whether we're going to have pie at all. Um, <laughs> Barry, I had a feeling, I'm glad we found you, I had a feeling you would remember some things from 1988. We were just at Disney talking to dozens of people. No one at Disney knew anything about 1988. 
It's amazing. And the gentleman right there was there in 1988 also, because he's wearing a 1988 t-shirt. And uh, and I, I have a couple of 1988 t-shirts, which I wear from time to time. Oh, my God. Along with, my, along with 88 buttons, which I'm not wearing today. I used to have a 1988 t-shirt, but also, in 1988, there wasn't as much picketing. No. No, no. What we did in 1988 was go to... Uh, we had these major mass things every once in a while in 1988. We would go to, I remember one, I think at Fox, and we had met big, big ones. But uh, this sort of thing started in 2008, 2007, really. And that one was the first time they organized it this way, with strike captains and people going places on a regular basis and becoming uh, part of a group and being out there every day. And that was pretty, that was really great. I mean, I have a picture of uh, those of us from the 2000, from 2008, the, the Radford Radicals. Yes, yes. Right now we're the Colfax Commies. I mean. But next week, we're going to be the Radford Radicals again. Oh, we're going to be back on the other side. Yes. That's good, because this side's been bleak. This is blue. This is blue. I mean, if you ever want a break from Radford, it's pleasant at Disney. There's some shade at Disney. There's a breeze at Disney. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited just to get to the other side yeah. of, of the place. That's I mean, true. You've paid take your dues. you paid your dues. You need to move this from is, Colfax to Radford. This has been hell out here. <laughs> it really has been hell. I, uh, this is this is the worst place to strike. There's no trees. There's no buildings. There's no, you know, there's not even the fielding you're picketing anything other than, you know, the L.A. River. Uh, it's like... It's, it, over there, you've got a gate. <laughs> there's a gate. There's buildings. There's trees. It, it, it feels like you're someplace. It feels like you're picking an actual studio. Well, Barry, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank What's you. your most impressive credit? Is it Happy Days? I always think that uh, my taxi credit is the most taxi. impressive. Taxi. Yes. Impressive. yes. Taxi and Happy Days, Barry Rabinowitz. And Laverne and Shirley. And Laverne and Shirley, thank you for talking us through 1988. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Now, Barry has a great memory. I would trust him with my life when it comes to baseball statistics. But 
There's a Mandela effect at play here, and it doesn't just involve Barry, where writers are confused about the difference between 1985 and 1988. And for the first series of interviews we did, I was confused myself. But here's what happened. In 1985, when we struck, there was a definition of home video profits that there was a dispute over. That We had a binding arbitration, as far as that goes, that was settled when the strike was settled, and a lot of writers were upset about it because they thought we should be getting more for home video. In 1988, we weren't still fighting over home video, but a lot of writers were still upset about 1985. And so when we talk to writers now about 1988, they mix in events from 1985 as if they happened during the 1988 strike. Right. They don't want to let it go. Not only do they not want to let it go, but they've conflated the times, even though they were three years apart. So, like, when we talk to Barry, again, I don't want to pile on Barry. He's a brilliant man. In the Fantasy Baseball League, he wrote a constitution that I never read. But whenever there sure. is a dispute, he would say it's in the constitution and we would and we would trust him. But, like, he was talking to us about – when he was talking to us and saying people lost their houses, he was saying people lost their houses over the fight for home video. That's not when they lost their houses. The 1985 strike only lasted two weeks. People didn't lose their houses over the 1985 strike. They lost their houses in 1988. They did? Yes. It was a six-month strike. It was a devastating strike. But the thing that we were striking for was not home video. Yeah. And right now, this strike has lasted. How long has this strike lasted? I heard that we're coming up on 100 days. 100 Um, days. So we're about halfway as long as the 88 one. As the 88 strike, yes. Now, we scored an interview with Brian Walton, who was the executive director of the Writers Guild in 1988. The most memorable moment in 1988 was at the end of the strike when he read to the packed Writers Guild meeting Shakespeare's St. Crispin's Day speech. Um, now, we should get this right. Was the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry IV Part One? Henry the Fourth, Part Two, or Henry the Fifth? Let me Google it. Mary, no, track I, down the, track down the information. The, but anyway, the fact that you would think I would know that he gave the St. Crispin's Day speech to a packed auditorium, and it was the one of the most thunderous ovations I've ever heard in my life. Why do you think that is? I think that it was partly just the relief of the strike ending. Sure, um, they were was, exhausted. Yeah, I think everyone was exhausted from the strike. And I think it was just a, a cathartic moment in the in the auditorium. It was also like a little bit poignant and bittersweet because there was a general feeling that we hadn't won that strike. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even exactly something to celebrate. It seems like some people might blame him for some of the home video stuff and think No, because he, he wasn't part of the or... Well, if they've if they've they're conflating nineteen eighty five and nineteen eighty eight, but he was not the executive director of the Writers Guild in nineteen eighty five. Right. He was in nineteen eighty eight. Did you chase down the St. Crispin's no, Day? No, I can't speech? connect. Josh, oh. thank you, Josh. Henry V. It's from Henry V. So was that Thank you, Josh. Was that in like a Kenneth Branagh movie? Oh no. I feel like Kenneth Branham might have given that speech, but he couldn't have done a better job than Brian Walton. You were there. You were in the front row. I was never in the front row. <laughs> no desire. No interest. Brian Walton, welcome to John Levenstein's retirement party. Thank you for joining us. You were the executive director of the Writers Guild in 1988 when that big strike happened, right? Yes. And 
what were some of the forces at work? Like I remember we were negotiating with the uh, producers, but there were also various factions within the guild. Like the meetings themselves seemed very colorful at the time. Yeah, I think that's correct. Dealing with the forces inside the guild, I think that the 80, 80, excuse me, the 88 situation really derived almost in a straight line from what happened in 1985 when there was also a strike, but it collapsed. I think that's a good expression after 18 days. And I was not executive director then. I was an outside lawyer for the guild working on the video cassette arbitration, which was big at the time. And there was a lot of internal dissent. And there was a group that called themselves the Union Blues who were exercising their legal right as union members to dissent. And there was a lot of, a lot of back and forth in 85. And as a result, the Guild made a deal, which I think many people thought wasn't a good one, um, regarding the residuals for video cassettes. So come 88, that was a memory. And I did not particularly want there to be a strike in 88 at all. I much preferred that we make a deal and try to foster an environment in which we could do that. It was very difficult because sometimes the companies just have no interest in making a deal, which the union would find reasonable, which I think is what's going on at the moment. Right. The companies in 88 weren't interested in making a deal. And it sounds like there was also a faction of writers that felt like we settled too quickly in 85 and they were going to stick it out for the strike. But then you also had the Writers Coalition. And it wasn't just that they were a voice for settling and they were a voice for dissent within the guild and they would threaten to leave the guild. But it seemed like they were almost provocative at the same time. Like they were very colorful at, at meetings. They almost seemed like they relished their role of being the villains sometimes within the guild. Hmm. Um, well, that's an interpretation. I I don't remember that, but that's because it was a long time ago. My sense of them was that they were trying to straddle the fence. They would say things like, I support the union. So we strongly support the union and it's time to go back to work because they didn't want to come out as against the union. But there was a clear point of view in the dissenters in 85 and in 82, I think, that when people go on strike, they don't recoup the amount of money that they lose, which I think, whether that's true or not, and those numbers are iffy, but the point is that it's not to be calculated necessarily on an individual-by-individual basis, but about the community of writers over history. And I remember that in 88, which isn't a direct answer to your question, the president of the Guild was George Kiergaard. And prior to 88, there was a strike by our news writers in the East Coast and in a couple of news shops in L.A. And George became something of a hero because he quit his position as a movie critic on one of the networks. And um, in the doing of that, it came out that he announced that he had been on strike for more than a year of his natural life over the time of his career as a writer. And if you go back and you look, the pro- the progress that was made by writers and actors, less for directors when it came to striking because they don't tend to strike, but um, those strikes in 1960, 1959, 1973, etc., were very foundational and important to setting up the pension plan, the health funds, and extending the principle of residuals. And so strikes strikes do have a role. And so when you come in and you say, we support the union, but it's time to go back, we have to make make it clear that it's a function of union labor law that those people have that right to have that that expression. And we tried to honor that in 88. 
In fact, I remember one thing, I think it's a humorous anecdote, but your listeners will decide. Um, in the final, <laughs> one of the final meetings at the Palladium in 88, I worked with George Kigo on what his remarks might be. And one of the things that he said in his opening remarks that we should respect dissent, let's remember who we are. And then as the meeting unfolded, it got somewhat contentious and people started shouting and arguing. And he said, I guess we've remembered who we are, which of course put it down the house. <laughs> And George was one of the funniest people on God's green earth, as well as one of the nicest. At one of these contentious meetings, now, I had heard from a member at the Writers Guild, and I have no direct memory of this, that Lionel Chetwind, who was one of the uh, members of the Writers Coalition, and Harland Ellison, who was more of a union firebrand, I assume, almost got into fisticuffs on the Writers Guild floor. Is that, is that overstated? On the Writers Guild board? No. On the floor. No, on the floor on the of a floor, meeting. On the floor. My recollection of that is that uh, Harlan was speaking or Lionel was speaking. The way it used to work is there would be three microphones for the members to speak. One was pro, uh, the, the motion on the floor to continue the strike or whatever. The other one was con, for people had a chance to get in and express themselves. And then there was the third one, which was for people to ask a question. And so I think my recollection is fuzzy, but generally it is that Lionel and Harlan were in different <laughs> we're in different lines and as Holland was speaking I think Lionel walked up or maybe it was the other way around and all I remember is that there was some Holland said something about come on and he used an epithet which tended to su suggest something about Mr. Chetwin's weight um, come on that's whatever and, but they were they were yards apart I don't think Fisticuffs was ever in the offering although one of them was making noises. The smaller one was making noises that he wanted to get into a fight. But it never happened. When you mentioned the three microphones, because I, rem I remember distinctly the three microphones, and from my point of view in the audience, it always seemed like you had the pro microphone, you had the con microphone, and in the middle you had the microphone for questions, but was also sort of the pet peeve microphone. And because these are writers, that was always the long line for the middle microphone because we're writers and everyone had something to say that was a little bit in the margins, you know? Well, it's interesting. You may or may not know that I was blessed to be the chief negotiator for sag after in 2001. And the way it tended to work in their meetings was that the, the people from the floor couldn't make statements they could just ask questions and so the questions would be pretty much like the British House of Commons where somebody might say it is pointed out that so-and-so is an asshole or this or that or blah 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 blah, blah. would you agree so that the <laughs> three words at the end are sort of interesting but, well, uh, I, I remember that there was some you know it was never boring I mean in 1985 I was allowed to go to the members meeting even though I wasn't on the staff, I was the lawyer, as I mentioned, outside handling that arbitration. And uh, it was high theater. I mean, there was a writer called Richard Powell who was incredibly, I think he was a, I don't know if he was the creator, but one of the writers on Hogan's Heroes, and he was incredibly funny. There were a number of people who, it really was high theater. That said, there was a serious undercurrent, but as you would expect, writers, writers were more colorful than perhaps other workers would be in those situations. I do remember those meetings being a lot of fun, even though there is a lot at stake as well. Um, now, we're going to be talking to Ken Ziffrin. How did he come to be involved? Because he wasn't on either side, right? Uh, I think it's correct that he wasn't on either side. 
did, did he insert uh, himself in the proceedings? Did you invite him in? How did he how did he get in there? Well, I didn't invite him in, um, but I'm glad that he came in at the time that he did. Um, what I recall, and again, please remember, this was a long time ago. I'm, I was in my 40s then. I was uh, 75 now, so I'm going to plead age. Um, but my recollection is that the AMPTP had stopped talking to us. And that my understanding is, and again, it's only an understanding, is that their chief negotiator, J. Nicholas Counter the third, Nick, had been instructed by the studio heads not to talk to me or not to talk to the writers' guild. And it's very hard to settle a deal when that's the situation. We had tried using the federal mediator, and that didn't work because uh, it just didn't work. There wasn't. The mediators were very good at mediating in a traditional sense, but they didn't have the kind of background of the industry that Ken obviously did. So all I remember is that I got a phone call. Somebody, I wish I could remember more in detail, but I remember that somehow I ended up on the phone with Nick and I said something about, I understand that you would like to come back to negotiations or maybe he said that. But then he said, the only way we'll do it in some substance is if Ken Ziffrin is the mediator. And uh, someone outside was suspicious of that, but uh, I I wasn't. I think that the strike went on for five months, at 22 weeks, and I think that's a lot. And I think that these things have a life of their own. And that was the longest ever strike in Hollywood history. But I think maybe the actors' uh, commercial strike may have gone one day longer than that, about 20 years afterwards. But for the most part, it was a very long strike. It had a life of its own. It had the rhythms of its own. And, you know, the membership would express itself. And I think the studios got to the point where they realized they were losing a whole bunch of money because the fall season was going going to hell when the fall season was something that mattered. And so the suggestion was that Ken would be a mediator, and he was in almost the real, very real sense. And he, from what I could see, was a mediator in a very honest and, and forceful sense. He had a lot of credibility with with the studios, I believe. Um, and he won credibility with the writers. Who, of course, everybody knew who Ken was. I did not really know him, as far as I recall, prior to that. I dealt with him a great deal afterwards, uh, and uh, that did nothing but increase my respect for his abilities. Uh, and very smart, which is uh, is unusually smart. Um, I once had a head of a studio that would say, you know, Ken is a Martian. I do whatever he says. Um, so... Whether that was across the board, I'll let somebody else worry about. But he came in and he operated as a mediator. He listened to both sides. He went did shuttle diplomacy. And uh, in the final sessions, he pretty much was able to tell the studios that this would be agreeable. And I had the sense that they were primed not to disagree with that particular point. And it was a delicate dance, but he did it well. And I think it was time for the thing to settle. And there were a lot of forces on that and to Describe them as basically it's like you know somebody in Plato's cave. You feel different. You see different parts. or feel different parts of the elephant. But it was time to bring it to a conclusion. And I would state that the strike was primarily over residuals in one hours. And uh, well, we did not achieve everything we wanted in that. We did achieve a very different formula, a very different, a significantly different formula, which I'm told by people at the guild. I don't have the exact numbers actually has brought in a significant amount of residuals in foreign residuals and otherwise because it was a slightly different 
formula than the one the DJ has agreed to, but I'll let others argue and find the facts on that. But in addition to that, and this is my point, there were 31 other points of, of what you could clearly characterize as gains that occurred as a result of that strike. So it hurt the other side, it hurt us, but at the same time a deal was arrived at, which ultimately was an honorable one and an aggressively successful one for the guild. And the studios don't like to talk about those 31 points, but they were not insignificant. So there you go. Well, there, there was such a sense of relief when the strike was settled. And I remember at the Palladium, you giving the St. Crispin's Day speech to thunderous applause. To, to thunderous applause. Now, do you have an acting background? Did you have to give uh, the speech at school once? Was that the first time you ever gave the speech? I think it, it may have been, but um, I don't know if it's the first time, but I've used it a few times. But credit where credit is due. I heard, in fact, at a meeting after the 85 strike, there was a dinner for people that had been involved in the 85 strike. And David Mintel, the former president of the government, gave a copy of the St. Christian's speech that had been printed in sort of old-style English to everybody at the dinner, and somebody may have read it. And I thought it was such a wonderful thing. I liked it very much. I mean, it's such a brilliant... You can use it. Whatever one thinks of Shakespeare, he knew what he was doing when it came to putting words together. So as I was thinking the day before the end of the strike, knowing that we were going to go to the members and say, we've got a deal and we'd like you to approve it, what do you say to people who've been have been putting their lives on the line or their, their not their lives in a, a war kind of sense, but certainly their livelihoods, their family's well-being, their own well-being, and had sacrificed for 22. What do you say to them? And I just remembered that. And so I took out the, I took out <laughs> the Shakespeare thing and I looked at it. And it's a long speech, and what I do remember is, and I don't have it in front of me, so I don't think I do. Somebody gave me a gift with it. Yeah, I guess I do, actually. And that's in my office. Somebody gave it to me in a sort of little one sheet. But I had to look at it because it goes on for a bit, and the question is, where do you start? What do you, what do you cut out? Well, I didn't want to edit anything Shakespeare had written. So I chose a place to start, which I thought was sort of a weak introduction. But if you were there, you probably remember this, because I think there's a video of it someplace. I said, I hope it's okay if to a group of writers I call a writer. And it begins, he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. And when I got to that point, <laughs> There was this tidal wave of noise that just came up towards the, the, the podium. And I, I had thought that was sort of an interesting introduction, but I hadn't really thought through what it meant. And there was this huge amount of noise. People were on their feet because they thought that I was basically taking on the Writers' Coalition and those who had refused to or had declined to support the strike all the way through. And I suppose now that I look at it, I understand that, that that's, a, that's a fair interpretation. But that's that's where it came from. I've seen somebody else use it once. I had a copy of it somewhere, of course, who doesn't have Shakespeare someplace on the shelf. And as I was thinking about what do you say, I thought this is a great thing to say. Because essentially, he that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Christian. He shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, to 
tomorrow is St. Christian, then will he strip his sleeves and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Christmas Day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember, with advantages, what feats he did this day. And then it goes on, but at the end, and this is the one that really got the people, from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we bands of brothers and sisters, for be today that sh- for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. And gentlemen in England are bad today will deem themselves a curse they were out here. Anyway, so what a great speech, right? <laughs> a little bit well, of and also, But also effective. So it's about how they will remember. And I do remember the speech. And there's a lot I don't remember about 1988. And I do remember the speech. So it totally worked on its own terms, too. Yeah, there's two things. If you want to be remembered, use something Shakespeare wrote or use something Churchill wrote. <laughs> Although not about racism or imperialism. But anyway. <laughs> no, no, you got to pick your spot. I thought that I was going to have to ask Brian Walton to read the St. Crispin's Day speech for us. And I thought, like, he might take offense. Like, why do you want me to read the St. Crispin's Day speech? I'm, I'm a lawyer. And if he didn't want to read the St. Crispin's Day speech uh, for us, I'd ask John Daly to do a dramatic reading of the St. Crispin's Day speech. Instead, with no prompting, Brian Walton read the speech just like I'd hoped. He was apprehensive to be recorded in the first place. He was a very lawyery choosing his words, but he uh, was very happy to give the speech. He had it memorized. Well, he didn't right? have it memorized. He had it printed out in his office. Oh, oh worse. Okay. Better. Better. Um, and now the person that he talked about, Ken Ziffrin, was a super lawyer, an entertainment lawyer in 1988 who was trusted by both sides who was brought in as a mediator once the strike had been going on for over five months. Ken came in and settled it in a couple days, and he's agreed to an interview. We're going to find out what Ken did. What was the magic wand that Ken waved? Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Ken Ziffrin's office. Hi, it's John Levenstein calling to interview Ken. Hi, John, one moment. I knew he'd be ready for us, Mary. Thanks. Hello. Ken, how are you doing? Welcome to John Levenstein's retirement party. I'm here with my co-host, Mary Kobayashi. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Mary. (laughs) Hi, thanks for talking to us. Sure, sure. Now, Ken, a little bit of background. Yours is the only law firm I was ever with. I was, I was with Cliff Gilbert Lurie at Ziffrin oh. for 25, 30 years, somewhere in there, because wow. I, went to, I went to middle school and high school with his wife, Leslie. Oh, sure. And just so uh-huh. you can picture this, she was the student body president. I was the parliamentarian. Wow. That's great. That's great. Where was that? 
Grant High School in Van Nuys, Millican Junior yeah. High School. Nice, nice, good. We spoke to Brian. We spoke to Brian Walton. He said to say hi to you. He was very compliment. He was very good. complimentary. Um, so we're doing this podcast about the 1988 strike and getting people's memories, yeah. trying to recreate it as much as we can. You came in at a crucial moment. The strike had been going on over five months. It was very contentious. Yeah. How were you? What was your experience of being brought in? And also, like, how were you able to resolve it so quickly? So let me kind of tell you the story, at least as I remember it. Um, about a week or two before the call it final moments, uh, I got a I got a call from Brian Walton, and Brian. I need to back up a step further than that. Uh, sometime during the strike, we gathered together a number of our clients and other firms' clients who were showrunners or or uh, show owners and had a meeting to discuss what needed to get done uh, to get the parties back together. And so it was probably in like June or July uh, that we had that, uh, I had that meeting at our offices. And after that meeting, I went over to the guild with two or three of my clients or others uh, again, top kind of sh- top showrunner types, and had a conversation with Brian and with whomever I can't remember was the then president, uh, and basically made a pitch for trying to get things going again so that everyone could go back to work. So when later then Brian called me. Uh, he basically said that he had made gestures of friendliness toward the studios and they had kicked him out of the room. And is there anything I could do to help in wow. that situation? So that kind of set me in motion <laughs> and and I then called the uh, studio heads that I was close to and told them about the call and said, Brian wouldn't call me unless he was serious about trying to make a deal. And if you guys are going to get hung up on formalities, that's a big mistake. And that kind of started me with some what I'll call shuttle diplomacy so that I would arrange for one or two of the CEOs to come over to my home and Brian would be there and we'd discuss various issues. And over a period of a week or two, 
things started to look more promising. And so uh, I ended up... Now, I can tell you a really fun story, but you have to promise not to use it. Really? <laughs> okay, we'll, pro- we'll promise. Okay, okay. fine. All right, listeners, we just heard a fun story that you're not sure. going to hear. But that does lead into my question. Why was everyone listening to you, Ken? Was it your reputation... Was it your clients? What do you think? Combination, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we represented at that point in time probably somewhere between a third and a half of the uh, showrunners or owners of network primetime shows. Amazing. Can so, you name any names? Uh, sure. Uh, yes. Well, um, Whit Thomas Harris, Miller Boyette, um, uh, Gary Goldberg, Steve Cannell. Um, was was Bochco with uh, you too? Name? Yeah, no, we didn't represent Steve, but he was part of the gang who uh, who went with me over to the WGA offices. So mm-hmm. Bochco was involved. Um, What's the, oh shit, I'm blanking on uh, someone who you undoubtedly know, um, Fall Guy. Oh, but not, not Stephen J. Cannell? Who else? No. Universal, though. Quinn Martin? No, no. Uh, <laughs> Aaron, uh, Aaron Spelling? <laughs> no, we didn't represent Aaron and we didn't represent Quinn, but again, they sent like delegations to to this earlier meeting. Hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other guys. I mean, it will come to me in a moment or two. Yeah, it'll it'll come to yeah. you. And, and now, and so the actual settlement was it yes. about the deal points? Was it just be, was it because people were ready to settle? Absolutely so it actually true. Came down to the deal. So points. we started we started at like seven eight o'clock, and I was basically. I'll call it a mediator. Uh, I wasn't as such helping the Writers Guild, but in truth, I was. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think uh, I presented... (sighs) I presented to the studios uh, someone who's willing to listen to their problems and see if I could try to work things out. And they had, in their view, been getting stonewalled uh, by the Guild prior to mm-hmm. what I'll call my involvement. So I would like sit for several hours. I would sit with the, the AMPTP people with along with some studio execs and talk to them about the various issues. And then I would go across the hall, so to speak, and sit down with the writers and talk to them. And there was a point in time where the writers, when I was with them, came to me and said, there's a emotional issue that we want desperately to get. And 
here it is. And then they explain what the issue was. I argued with them, and I'll tell you what it is in a moment, but I argued with them that, in fact, they were going at it the wrong way and that they didn't really want to get what they thought they were getting. And they said, no, 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 you may be right on the merits, but it's something that is really dear and true to our hearts, and we've got to get this. So the issue was... What happens when a writer does an original screenplay at a studio and the show and the movie isn't made, is not made, and the writer, original writer, wants to get his or her script back and shop it elsewhere? And studios, once they've paid, and there was assumed for a moment no producer involved where the producer would have turnaround rights, the studio would sit on it. And the idea was that the guild wanted that after, I think it was five years, or it may have been seven, I'm not sure, after five years that the writer would have a chance to recapture the script and repay the studio what the writer got. Now, that wouldn't happen that wouldn't happen unless and until the writer was able to set it up elsewhere, okay? Then the studio would get whatever it paid the writer and uh then the picture would get made. And what I posed to them because I thought it was stupid <laughs> was wait a minute what if the studio wanted at that point in time to hire a new writer to work on the script and the guild people said no 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 and I said wait a minute if the studio wanted to develop the script further we're bringing in a new writer. There's more money into the script. Your writer is a guild member. You're getting dues and residuals if that script gets produced. I don't understand why you would want to favor the original writer instead of, in effect, postponing the time during which the studio during which the writer, original writer, had the ability to get the uh, script back. And they said, because the original writer is who made this all happen, and we want him or her to have better rights than a subsequent writer. And I said, this is going to be difficult for me to sell, but if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. So I then remember also well walking back to the uh, room in which the, uh, the AMPTP people and studio types were there. And I said to them, I got a ridiculous issue for you. I hope you'll bear me out on this. I hope you'll do me and yourselves a favor because I think that if I can deliver this back to them, they will then 
trust me, and we can make progress for the rest of the evening. And, and, and they agreed, and they said, we don't like what we're doing, but if you're setting a, you know, a five-year deadline or something like that, okay, go ahead and run with it. So I went back to the guild That's and said, yeah. okay, you got it. What's next? And they all looked at me and said, that's wonderful. And I said, no, 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 no. We're not done. We got all these other issues. Come on, tell me what you want. And that started the process. And it then took another, what, six hours or something like that. And around, I don't know, four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, um, there were a few of us in the room with uh, the AMPTP people and uh, studio execs, Brian and me, and I'm not sure who else from the guild. And uh, we were down at that point to like three or four issues. And I made the speech for the writers. We want X, Y, and Z. And they nodded their heads, said, would you leave the room? We'll get back to you. I said, fine. We left the room. About five minutes later, they came out. We went back in the room and they said, okay, let's go. And that was it. So interesting. All right. I have an evolving theory I want to bounce off of you, Ken, and it relates to the idea of like what that deal point was that was very important that seemed almost arbitrary to you at the time. I believe a lot of what was being acted out in the 1988 strike was there were a lot of writers, feature writers especially, who were still upset about 1985 and giving up the binding arbitration about profit definitions as part of the 1985 settlement. So you had this thing going on in 1988 where people were upset about 1985 which isn't really a, a feeling you can negotiate away, but still they needed something in exchange for being upset about 1985. And I would say what you got them was probably partly paying off that debt for how they felt about 1985. That's a good, that's a good interpretation. I have no idea, no idea, but you may be right. I mean, I'll, t I'll take it's a good interpretation. <laughs> Now, mm -hmm. did you did you also carve out for writers um, some creative rights in the settlement? I can't remember, but I think those were not really controversial. I don't recall the creative rights issues as being at the center of the negotiations. Do directors tend to fight for creative rights more than writers do, or are yes. studios are studios yes. more inclined are studios more inclined to give creative rights to directors yes. than they are to writers? Yes. Why 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 do they like directors more than they like us? <laughs> because you fail and directors rarely fail. Right, because when they're hired, you mean the movie's being made, for instance, whereas when I'm hired, it's probably not going to be. That's correct. Wow. So interesting. Um, Ken, do you have any showbiz? Do you have any showbiz grudges? What do you mean? 
Do you have, you seem like the sort of person who wouldn't. One thing we've done on this podcast if we've, is we've talked to people who have longstanding show business grudges, like business grudges, someone they've been mad at for decades. And we've actually resolved a couple of those grudges, but you don't seem like the sort of person who has a lot of grudges. No. No. <laughs> okay. I didn't think so. That one went nowhere. <laughs> All right. Well, that was our deep dive into the 1988 strike. And, you know, the good thing about this strike is as long as it goes on, my retirement is held in abeyance. That's true. Much to your chagrin, you can't retire until this is all over. Um, that's my that's my current reason why I can't retire. So what, what did you think of Ken Ziffrin? <laughs> I thought he was great. Um, <laughs> he answered all my questions uh, I mean, possibly, possibly the most powerful entertainment lawyer of all time, and he agreed to appear on our on our niche podcast, Mary. Yeah, quite a feather in our caps. Absolutely. Now, to me, what are the big themes that emerged from this episode? I think you know one of them is the people confusing 1985 and 1988. Another, though, it seems like that we kept coming back to is that there's much more togetherness in the Writers Guild now than there was in 1988 or even in 2007. There's a lot more solidarity, it seems like. I think there is. And I, I feel like part of it is because I'm not sure exactly like who got the showrunners together and why they're holding strong in this strike. But like in 1988, a little bit of 2007... There is an inherent tension where it's like, are the showrunners going to stick with us throughout? Are a few of them going to leave the union? And really, I'm not sensing any of that, the strike. It feels like they're holding strong and there's some sort of sense of responsibility about putting the out-of-work members, putting the younger members first. Yep. Mm -hmm. Where did it come from? Is it, uh, is it shame? Is it social media? Are people more afraid of going against the union now? Or is it that... Like, being progressive and being pro-union has gone more mainstream. Like, what's different? It could be social media. There's a lot more accountability now than there was in 1988, don't you think? Speaking of that, I, I may have to stop tweeting at the producers and the studios. Never. What if the, what if the hard feelings caused by my tweets are, are what are prolonging the strike, Mary? What if my zingers, what if my zingers are bringing them down? Uh, then you would feel just awful about that. I would. Maybe I'll stop. Maybe I'll start being a force for good. How long you you've been through strikes now over the years? How long do you predict this one going on? Just a prediction. I think it's going to end shortly after Labor Day. I feel like there used to be a feeling when we struck, like the fall season is at risk. We've got to settle it before the fall season is canceled or whatever. I don't think people care about that in the same way they used to, but I do feel like a lot of people planned summer vacations. <laughs> like, it, like it doesn't feel like human nature to me to solve this thing in August. Sure. But September is a month of fresh starts. Like it feels like that's when they're going to be, okay, we've got to, we've got to put these strikes to bed. Yeah. So you think it could be September. Yes, that's my prediction. September, shortly after Labor Day. Yeah, maybe Jordan will record one with every every date from September to December, the specific day, and then we'll just put whichever one it is in. Oh, September nineteenth. Oh, okay. Be amazing. Yeah, no, I'm I just joking. No, it's great. I predict the strike is going to end September fourteenth. I predict the strike is going to end <laughs> September fifteenth. I predict the strike is going to end September sixteenth. This has been a special writer's strike edition of John Levenstein's Retirement Party. Join us the next time John retires. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. If you made it all the way to the end, you're a beautiful person. If you're not hearing this voice, go to hell. Earwolf Presents is produced by Earwolf, Amelia Chapelo, and Cody Fisher. And of course, podcast daddy Colin Anderson himself. The Earwolf Presents series is hosted by the one and only myself, Jaquise Neal. And our theme music was engineered and sung by the amazing Jordan Duffy. Special thanks and shout outs to Jeff Gross and Aaron Nestor. And for more information on Earwolf Presents, visit Earwolf.com and follow us at Earwolf on all social platforms. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.